today I called for an FBI investigation, um, absolute corruption from the governor, giving out vaccines to big Republican donors. Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I am the vice chair of the Collier Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. Commissioner Nikki Freed came to speak to our monthly meeting. Commissioner Freed is the only Democrat elected to the Florida cabinet in the last 25 years. We're very pleased that the commissioner came to speak to our members and it's a big thanks to her staff who allowed us to record her remarks so we could bring them here to you. So we also have our normal panel discussion this week. We talk about Governor DeSantis's COVID corruption and look at the American Rescue Plan and what it means for Americans everywhere. But before we get to the commissioner and all of that, here is a quick update on the things going on in the party. We need you to get back involved in calling your state representatives because the Republicans are at work in Tallahassee right now trying to pass a bunch of really bad laws that will do nothing but hurt all of us. One in particular that we are targeting right now is a bill designed to cut Florida Bright Future scholarships in half, and it includes forcing those who are getting scholarships to choose from a list of majors selected by the Republican legislature. It's a really, really, really awful bill. Please sign up for our phone bank to call your fellow citizens and make them aware of this attempt by Republicans to put a dimmer switch on the Florida Bright Futures program. You can go to Mobilize to sign up for the phone bank. Just go to our website, www.callyourdems.org, and click on the red Mobilize button at the top of the home page. But uh, in addition to this bill, there's a whole bunch of other bills on the docket to be worried about. The Republicans would like to make it more difficult to vote. They'd like to make it illegal to protest in certain instances. They want to undermine the will of Floridians again who passed medical marijuana by limiting the amount of THC in the products. They are also looking to take away local jurisdictions' ability to enact energy policies such as banning fracking, preventing solar permits, etc. Our own state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo, seems to be on board with that bill, stating recently that uh, she thought it was a good idea. The bill's sponsor even admits that the bill was written by the American Natural Gas Association, so... I guess so much for allowing local governments to do what's best for their communities. So many of these laws go unheard by local residents. We need to make sure everyone knows what the GOP is up to. Please keep an eye out over the next 60 days for more phone banks and activities to keep all of the Collier residents informed and engaged. Our next DEC meeting is on April 4th at 6.30 p.m. on GoToMeeting. So if you're interested in attending that meeting, please reach out to our secretary, Francie Hunt, to get access. That's all for now. Let's move on to Commissioner Nikki Freed. If you are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in on our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. Thank you for all the support. Mm-hmm.
we have with us tonight um, Commissioner Nikki Fried. She is Florida's 12th Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services. And it's um, pretty cool that we have her this month because we're also celebrating Women's History Month and Commissioner Fried is the first uh, woman elected to this office. Uh, she won by a razor thin margin. This is what I'm saying when I say that every vote counts and all of our work, even in red Collier County makes a difference. Commissioner Freed won her office by just over 6,700 votes. She's the first Democrat in 20 years to hold this cabinet statewide position. And currently, she is the sole Democrat in statewide office. And so it is our pleasure today to have her with us. And uh, Commissioner Freed, if you would like to go ahead and um, start your comments, we would be pleased to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me here tonight. It's so good to, to see so many of you. I'm from Collier County. Um, so for those who don't know, I was born and raised in Miami. And so we used to spend a lot of time uh, going on Alligator Alley, going over to Marco Island and, and spending weekends there with the family. So have a lot of fond memories of coming over to, to your part of the state and uh, was there last year as well when unfortunately we had a whole slew of uh, wildfires out there. And for those who don't know, uh, we oversee the forestry division inside of the Department of Agriculture. Uh, so I was out there at your EOC and talking to the brave men and women that were on the front lines protecting home and property property out there. And, and so because of this, and, and, and certainly, you know, not only the wildfires, but living on the on the water, um, you know how important in, in your community, how important it is uh, to deal with the climate crisis. Um, but I also want to say congratulations, because while we had some some hard losses in 2020, you certainly all stepped up and, and seeing numbers, record numbers of Democrats coming to the polls and voting. So congratulations. Um, that is, that's a huge feat. And I, and I feel like we, we kind of share some of this. Um, people underestimated me my entire life, just like the underestimate um, you all being able to, to turn your county blue and to really bring some democratic wins. Um, you know, when I first ran for commissioner of agriculture, you know, here I was uh, a young Jewish female from South Florida in a very uh, white male dominated industry. And so everybody underestimated me and wrote me off as somebody who was not only going to be able to win, but actually do anything good um, once in office as being, you know, now the only Democrat. Uh, but with your help and with your support, we got me over the finish line and to be your 12th commissioner of, of agriculture and consumer services. And I'm so honored. But I want to tell you a little bit more about like what makes me tick and the things that drive me to serve every single day. You know, it really started at a very young age. Um, when I was in about third or fourth grade, you know, I was struggling a little bit in school. I wasn't keeping up with my peers. People had written me off and underestimated, you know, what I was going to be able to accomplish in life. And I had this incredible teacher I'll never forget. Her name was Judy Battelle, who you know, spent some additional time with me in school and and teach taught me new ways to to learn and, and to and to really kind of comprehend the material. And because of that, I was able to not only you know graduate high school, you know, in the top you know 10% of my class, but also attend the University of Florida. But I had the same experience when I went to UF. I'll never forget the first couple of days I walked into a student senate meeting. I was already wanting to get involved on campus. And again, I'm walking in with like tie-dye t-shirt and Birkenstocks and everybody else there were in these blue blazers and white shirts and these bow ties. And really they just kind of didn't expect anything from me and didn't expect it, nor did I. Um, that I was going to be able to really rise to the occasion and be able to make a difference. But um, like my entire rest of my life, I, I've worked hard and I overcame so many of the obstacles that were put in front of me and became uh, the first female student body president in almost two decades. Uh, so again, overcoming odds and, uh, and really um, proving those who underestimated me uh, wrong. 
And then after graduation from law school, I went up to Jacksonville, where I was in a big law firm doing commercial litigation. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, the year in, I, you know, said to myself, this is not why I went to law school. I went to law school to, to serve and to make things better for people, uh, not represent corporations and um, really just kind of turn the wheel in the legal process. So I left and went down to Alachua County um, and was at the public defender's office for three and a half years every single day. Um, you know, fighting for the people that I was representing and again, trying to overcome, you know, those who were the naysayers and that I couldn't make a difference as a public defender. But every single case, every single person I represented got a zealous representation. And at the end of it all, uh, state attorneys were coming to me, trying to give me deals because they knew they didn't want to go up against me in the courtroom. Uh, you know, and after all that time, I, I really miss being still involved in public policy. And so I, I left the PD's office and eventually made my way up to Tallahassee, uh, where I was uh, going, you know, above and beyond trying to represent uh, foster care children and those in the public education system and expansion access to medical marijuana. But unfortunately, every step along the way, again, I was this junior lobbyist and everybody underestimated my ability to really make things happen. And I saw doors slammed every single opportunity and really only taking care of corporations and not the people that I was representing. And so I got frustrated and said, I, I'm tired of this old boy system and I'm gonna raise my hands and I'm gonna put myself out there. And that's what I did. And I won because of your support and the things that we all collectively fought for. And now as commissioner, um, I made some promises to our state uh, when I was running and wanted to make sure that first, First opportunities I could to make the difference and to come up with and to achieve my campaign promises, I did. Uh, the first one, for those who remember my my, my three W's, uh, weed, water, and weapons. Uh, and the first one was on weapons. Uh, for those who don't remember, my uh, predecessor allowed for 13 months concealed weapon permits to not have, uh, applicants not receive background checks. And the NRA had a tremendous amount of influence in my office. So I promised the citizens of our state that if elected, NRA would be kicked out of the office and they would have no more influence. And that is exactly what we have done. The NRA has no influence and no impact in my office whatsoever. We cleaned house. We have new leadership inside of our division of licensing. And now every single person who applies for a concealed weapons permit receives a complete and accurate background check. Huge accomplishments in a very short period of time. My second W, weed. Uh, first opportunity, we passed hemp here in the state of Florida. Under my leadership, I had a bipartisan support. Uh, and we were able to get hemp passed, which is an incredible crop for our farmers, an alternative crop, uh, better for the environment. It's biodegradable. It's going to replace all of our plastics and our straws and our styrofoam and using as hempcrete instead of concrete, um, all biodegradable and really better for the environment. And it's already being utilized uh, to grow on some of our waterways and clean some of the nutrients out of the water. Also created the first ever cannabis director here in the state. Uh, and so really moving the ball forward and now uh, using my bully pulpit to fight some of the, the awful legislation that has been proposed uh, during this legislative session to cap our THC levels and our, our smokable flower and really putting a tax on our patients. And the third, which I know is so important to you all is water. Uh, we all saw the blue-green algae and the red tide that decimated our state in 2018. Uh, so I came in and we changed leadership inside of our ag water policy. We are updating manuals that haven't been done in you know, decades, uh, with, even though there's been new technology and new innovation. So we've been able to accomplish a lot of our three W's. But what else you did when you elected me is you put me into the Florida cabinet. And so now every single day I get to hold the governor accountable.
making sure that he's doing what's right by our state, making sure that there's transparency in applications, uh, fighting for uh, expansion on clemency. Uh, again, one of the first things we did was uh, pardon the Groveland Four, which were four um, African-American men back 70 years ago who were uh, criminally charged with the rape of a young lady. Um, none of it was true. And unfortunately, a few, a couple of them along the way were killed uh, while in custody. And the families have been asking for a pardon. And it took us as a Democratic Party to push this over the, over the line and make sure that the rest of the cabinet approved the pardoning at, through the clemency. And of course, now during this pandemic, every single day I wake up and I'm so heartbroken about what the governor is doing for our state and having a lack of empathy and leadership. And I get to use my position to really hold him accountable, make sure he's doing right by our state, and if not, be calling it out, including today, I called for an FBI investigation uh, to what I call uh, corruption, um, absolute corruption from the governor, giving out vaccines to big Republican donors and to people that are supporting him and making them at the front of the line, while so many of our seniors uh, still can't get access to get onto the, onto the list, can't get access to um, the vaccines and um, that's corruption. He's using these vaccines as a political tool and a political weapon for those who do not support him. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do, but certainly, um, you know, we have two years behind us that have great, tremendous accomplishments. But in closing, because I want to hear some of your questions, I want to I want to tell you a quick story um, that starts with four numbers: six, seven, five, three. Um, as mentioned, those are the numbers that I won by, 6,753 votes. So I'm going to take you back to the story of election night 2018. Throughout the course of the night, we're all watching all of the ballots coming in. And at some point in the night, I was down about 45,000 votes. And everybody counted me out, underestimated my ability to, to overcome this. My, the news reports were saying that, that I had lost. My opponent that night uh, went on to TV and declared victory. But what I did, I came downstairs to my watch party and I told everybody in there that we are not done fighting. Do not underestimate me. Do not underestimate you, knowing that we were going to fight because we know that we had won and we know that the ballots were going to be there. And I know that there were so many people that were heartbroken on that election night, um, seeing Senator Nelson and Andrew Gillum lose and the rest of the Democratic ticket. And so I knew that we had to keep fighting to make sure that the things that we hold true as Democrats got past the finish line. And I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for you, for the citizens of our state, for the mission, for the vision that we had um, throughout the entire campaign of what we can do here for the state of Florida. And as the night went on, um, I went back to my hotel room and lo and behold, uh, sometime in the middle of the night, Broward County um, had some more ballots that were uploaded into the system and we only were down 11,000 votes. So called my team back in, I said, guys, we owe it to the people of our state to fight for them and to fight for our visions. And I promise that if you continue to stick with me and fight with me over the next couple of years, we will get a lot of accomplished and we will continue to hold the banner of the values that we hold true as Democrats. I cannot thank you, Collier County, for not only getting me past a victory on 2018, um, but what you're doing to turn our, our, your county blue and to continue fighting for the values that are of the Democratic Party. Thank you for having me here tonight. Thank you for your support. Uh, we're not done yet, but... Um, I will turn it over back to you so we can do some questions. Thank you very much, Commissioner Freed. Thank you for those words. I am going to um, ask our vice chair, Jeff Spencer, to um, do some of the questioning. I do actually have one question to start out with. 
there is a lot of pressure being put on you because you're the sole Democrat in statewide office, but you see how the legislature, um, the legislature started um, two days ago. And uh, this is this is where we get a lot of the work done. The, the issues that we care about, climate change, public quality, quality public education, uh, women's right to choose, all of those things that we often talk about happen at the state level, you know? And so our legislative station session has just started. Do you see, um, do you see any um, democratic legislatures that are kind of paving the way to new legislation that can be broad in the state, that can have a big, broad um, focus and effect that could possibly actually get passed, you know, even through the Republican legislature? You know, I, I sit and spend a lot of time with our Democratic caucus, um, both on the House and the Senate, and there are some great legislation that's passed. Uh, that it, that is being proposed by the Democrats. Everything from education issues and moving the ball forward to uh, climate crisis issues to energy um, to, to a whole litany of things to, to make our state better. Um, unfortunately, uh, they are the Republicans in our state, the legislature and the governor is going right of crazy that when the governor gave his state of the state address uh, this Tuesday, uh, his priorities were taking down China. Uh, taking down the big tech companies, um, the protest legislation. Uh, those are not things that the average person in our state is talking about. They're talking about access to food. They're talking about equal opportunity for education, broadband for so much of our, of our state that don't have access to, you know, the Internet and, and, and are trying to telework or virtually teach their children. Unemployment system. You know, these are the issues that are impacting our everyday Floridians. But the Republican Party, unfortunately, is pushing a priorities list that is only to take care of their base. Um, I don't remember, you know, I, I was a student of politics my entire life, and I was taught at a young age what public servants meant and what public services. And that means you're supposed to serve for the greater good. And that's not just the people that voted for you or supported you, but it's now your entire constituency base. And, and I just think that they, they've missed the ball on that and, and they are, have been so used to power um, that they continue to grab it as much as possible. I hope that we can find some legislation to move the ball forward. I mean, the things that we're supporting and pushing are not partisan. Uh, again, school nutrition issues and, and access to food, and we have a tremendously comprehensive energy bill, access to broadband, medical marijuana. These are not partisan issues, but unfortunately, the Republicans want to retain their power, and they don't allow Democrats to have wins because they know that we'll campaign on our victories, uh, but they're not understanding that the people of our state expect us to work together and want these issues to be to the forefront, but that's just not the priorities of, of this administration. Yeah, we, we see that in the way that people vote for statewide referenda, right? We voted for land conservation. We voted for restoration of rights. And these are democratic principles, democratic with a small D and a big D. Those are the things that Democrats are pushing for. So the people of the state of Florida clearly want those things, but they have not connected those policies with democratic candidates. Um, and that's our job, I think, as a democratic party, is to make sure that people understand that those are the policies that will be enacted if Democrats are in power. They won't, um, you know, right now the Republicans are using our tax money to fight those referenda that were passed in court, you know, and so um, thank you for your hard work. And uh, Vice Chair Spencer, I know I keep saying I'm gonna turn it over to him, but uh, Vice Chair Spencer, uh, do you have any uh, questions for Commissioner Freed? Yes, we do. And uh, Commissioner Freed, thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight. We're really, 
really happy to have you here and, and glad that you agreed to, to allow us to put this on the podcast. If anyone has uh, questions, please put them into the chat box. Um, let's start with one that came through. Um, you mentioned medical marijuana. Uh, the current medical marijuana system in Florida is uh, very bureaucratic. What are future plans for trying to streamline that process? Well, you know, the, the pro there's a lot of problems uh, with the program. Uh, one is the Department of Health uh, gets in the way a lot um, and, and keeps changing the rules on, on the dispensaries. Uh, the fact that, you know, vertical integration needs to be broken up uh, right now that because we only have, you know, everybody, it, it has to be able to cultivate, manufacture, process uh, and distribute the, 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 the medicine that the overhead costs are extraordinary. Uh, and so that needs to be broken up. We need to have new licenses. We need to make sure that telehealth is there, uh, protections for employees um, when they have the medical marijuana card, that they don't get fired from their employer if they test positive, uh, making sure that we have reciprocity. We have too many people across the country that are on have medical marijuana access and can't travel to our state because they can't buy it here. Um, so those are things that, that need to happen. Unfortunately, there's been legislation that has been proposed um, over the last four days that actually makes it more restrictive. Uh, cutting down the THC levels, having additional regulations. So it's going to take either a couple of things from happening. One, we're waiting for a Supreme Court ruling on a case uh, that could potentially break up vertical and break up the amount of, of licenses that can be given out. If that happens, the legislature is going to have to come back in and make changes. The next aspect of it is you need, you may need a constitutional amendment in 2022 to actually get to adult use. Um, I have a, a big philosophy that even when we get to adult use in, in the state and in the country, we still need a robust medical marijuana program. That way, uh, patients still have medical grade cannabis. Uh, it's not taxable that you have a still a doctor relationship, um, but we still, but we need to fix the medical marijuana program as well. We can't just go right to legalization. We got to make sure, in my view, that we have two programs that you know coalesce together um, and, and make the program work. Awesome. So here's another question. Um, a couple weeks ago, you announced a, a coordinated effort with the White House to strengthen the economy, keep America and Florida growing. Uh, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that and what that's uh, doing here in Florida. Absolutely. So we put together a 30 page, uh, 40 issue document that we submitted to the White House. Uh, and it's everything from issues on legalization of marijuana um, to crop insurance for our for our growers, making sure that we've got issues that have been impacting our state dealing with um, the USMCA, which is a was NAFTA, um, to environmental issues, climate crisis, getting more carbon farming and more um, different grants coming down from the USDA. Um, so a lot of this stuff, food nutrition, making sure that we continue some of the programs that were started during the pandemic that and continue them afterwards. Uh, there has also been a couple of different uh, different rulings from the EPA. Um, that we have asked for them to revisit because um, we feel that they were not the right decisions, including taking away uh, permitting for development um, from the um, Army Corps of Engineers and giving it directly just to the DEP, the De of Environmental Protection here in the state of Florida. Um, and it goes even further into voting rights issues, um, making sure that in agriculture that we are looking at inclusion and diversity, um, how we give out grants and working with so many of our minority farmers across the country. 
and across the state of Florida. So a lot of this is synergy that, that we already know the White House is working on, and we wanted to show a, a real partnership and a real comprehensive partnership on things that we can move the ball forward on. So we had a lot of conversations previously before actually submitting the forms, uh, submitting the, the plan to both the transition team, to EPA, USDA, FDA, uh, and really trying to, to see how there could be real collaboration between the White House and the state of Florida, considering that the governor still, as of today, as I'm aware, um, has still not spoken to President Biden. Uh, so we need to make sure that we are, are a, at least a tool for the White House to get some initiatives accomplished in the state. So here's another question uh, from the chat box. How often do you meet with the rest of the cabinet and how difficult has it been being in the same room and, and working with the rest of the cabinet? Uh, so, um, so it was typically speaking that we used to have cabinet meetings uh, about every other month. Uh, since 2020, uh, the governor has canceled virtually almost every single cabinet meeting, uh, blaming it on the pandemic, but yet would go off and travel across the state or have a press conference inside the cabinet room with more people than would be there in a cabinet meeting. Uh, so really disingenuous about the reasons why he was canceling uh, cabinet meetings. Uh, this year, we have had one cabinet meeting and we do have one next week. Um, the governor comes in kind of after the three of us are already in the room. Uh, he comes in, starts the meeting, um, really doesn't give an opportunity for discussion, uh, goes through his agenda and quickly gavels out as soon as possible. Uh, so it's a little bit, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's not just uncomfortable for me. Uh, quite frankly, the rest of the cabinet also doesn't um, uh, get along with the governor either. Um, so while I have had a long relationship with both uh, Ashley Mooney and uh, Jimmy Petronas. Um, so there is still a collegial environment between the three of us uh, on issues. But unfortunately, uh, the governor has made this um, very difficult for, for us, um, but it doesn't deter me. Um, I walk in knowing what my mission is and, and that's to, to serve the people of our state. And if I need to disagree with the other three, then I certainly speak up and, and, and say my piece um, when the governor isn't trying to rush out of the room. So uh, you mentioned in your remarks and Anissa brought up the legislative session that uh, started this week. Is there um, any particular piece of legislation that voters should be most vigilant of? And uh, could you make comment on House Bill 1, the anti-protest bill? So yes, that is one of the bills that the people of the state of Florida should be very worried about. Um, that what has happened is the governor, because to at the time appease President Trump, um, and the very right wing of the party um, and saw what was happening with Black Lives Matter movement um, across the country and felt that he wanted to stop, you know, stop the riots here in the state of Florida and be law and order. Um, except he forgot to mention to everybody that the issues and the things that they're trying to criminalize are already criminal activities. You know, they go out there and they talk about we can't allow, you know, police officers to be, you know, beaten and, and, and you know, and, and, you know, when they're just trying to do their jobs. Well, first of all, that's a third degree felony that's already on the books. Um, and then they talk about we can't let people be throwing, you know, rocks through windows. You're right. That's vandalism. That's already a criminal activity. And so really the, the point of this bill is to imprison more black and brown people. Um, and we should be going in the opposite direction. So and to limit free speech. And so this is something that the people of our state should be attuned to and be very well aware of um, that this is happening. And again, it is to go after 
this law and order rhetoric um, that really doesn't even have any clout here in the state because of course we're law and order. No one wants to see riots. We all want to be able to peacefully protest. And so that's one issue. Uh, second is they're coming after vote my mail ballots. Uh, there's some legislation that has been proposed that makes, you know, right now that every two years, you then have to re-register to get your mail-in ballot. Uh, what they're saying is now it's every year. So if you happen to not have been so astute to what is happening and when your election is, you may miss those opportunities and not know that the law has changed. Uh, in addition, part of that bill, those bills that are also being presented um, says that you have to request the ballot, that somebody can't tell you like a supervisor elections, hey, if you want to receive your ballot, you know, please mail this back in by a certain time, which so many of our supervisor elections across the state were doing. And also grassroots groups saying cards that will be submitted saying, you know, if you want your, your mail-in ballot. Um, so they are trying to really curtail um, voting. And they call it that we're trying to create the integrity of the system, but really, quite frankly, um, that is voter suppression. And, and, and that is what's happening. So those are two uh, big bills that, that people should really be monitoring and, and be on guard. And, and of course, as I've already mentioned, some of the THC and marijuana bills um, is another problem that they are trying to create a tax on our marijuana um, patients by lowering the amount of THC that is allowed to be sold uh, in our dispensaries. Yeah, it's funny how Republicans complain about election integrity when they're running most of the uh, the systems, especially here in Collier County. You mentioned uh, corruption with uh, Governor DeSantis and that you you rolled out some some talks about that. Um, can you elaborate on what you're seeing with the vaccine rollout and how he's handling that and uh, all of the uh, COVID uh, response from the governor's mansion? Yeah, absolutely. You know, th these are things that we saw day one, you know, that we didn't have a plan. We still don't have a plan on the vaccine rollout. Um, it was kind of first, it was, a you know, first come, first serve, you know, in certain communities. And you saw seniors lining up for hours upon hours and bringing bags to relieve themselves while they're in line. I, I mean, that that's just absolutely asinine. And then we saw that he then shifted from, you know, hospitals to, to Publix's. And, and we all know that because of food insecurity that so many people in our state don't have access to a Publix. You know, some of them it would take 45 minutes if they have a car to drive to the closest Publix. So there was, because we didn't have a plan, you saw some of our, our urban communities and uh, some of our rural communities and some of our, you know, communities that, that really don't have resources and a lot of minority communities not being, having access to the vaccine. Then he changed it. And now it's back, you know, again at, at Walmarts and CVS's and the problem has also been that, you know, he put it into into um, the villages and made the comments of we need to put it in similar like minded communities. You know, we all know what that means. Um, and then we've now seen three specific examples where you have VIP lists in communities and you have access to the vaccine if you happen to be living in a gated community because a donor of the Republican Party lives there. And then we saw yesterday come out too, the same thing happened in Coral Reef uh, down in Key Largo, where there's 17 people that gave $5,000 campaign contributions to DeSantis in December. And then sometime later was about another $250,000 campaign com uh, contribution from a past Illinois governor, a Republican. And that community got 1,200 vaccines in January 
Um, nobody knew about it. It was completely exclusive to that community and to those individuals. Um, and so I have huge concerns that this is corruption, that he is using these vaccines as a political tool for those who support him and hurting communities that, that are not supportive or have come up and raised concerns about him or our democratic areas or people that he knows aren't going to vote for him. Uh, so these are huge uh, red flags. And again, as a past public defender, I, I'm very well aware of what a fact pattern in criminal cases look like. And I've seen this up close and personal. And when there is smoke, um, there is fire. And so that's why I've asked for both the congressional uh, a committee that oversees the, the vaccine rollouts to look into this and to investigate it. And today uh, called on the FBI to actually start a criminal investigation. Awesome. Well, Commissioner Freed, thank you very much for coming and joining us. I know that you're very busy and you have uh, lots of things to do. Um, we're very, very appreciative of all your time and you're more than welcome to come back anytime to the Collier County DEC. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me here tonight. And I certainly look forward to seeing you all in person uh, when we get vaccinated and get some of this uh, COVID behind us. So thank you. Be safe. Continue wearing a mask, social distance. And uh, certainly if the vaccine is available, go, go get your vaccination. the Collier Democratic Party want to take a moment to thank all of the volunteers and supporters that helped Collier County have the highest Democratic turnout of any county in the entire state. With your help, we hit 91% turnout, but our work is not done. We have to continue building our coalition to defeat Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio in 2022. We may be rid of Donald Trump, but there are many who aided and abetted his incompetence. We need you to make a donation to help us prepare for the next election please go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org and click on the red donate button. We thank you for your support. All right, we're here with Amber and Linda. How are you guys doing today? We just got done with Nikki Freed. What do you guys think of Commissioner Freed? I think she would make a wonderful governor here in the state of Florida. Yeah, I thought she um, she made some very good points. I, I don't know that I've ever actually listened to her speak before. So I found her insight into some of the issues facing Floridians to be, I thought it was actually quite different. Um, the way that she spoke seemed unlike a lot of other politicians you know, especially typical Florida politicians that we've been used to having lived here my whole life. So that was refreshing. And um, I like her ideas. And I, I liked her tenacity. I feel like she's smart. And um, she doesn't seem like she backs down. So um, that's it. That's a good point, Amber. I liked her moxie. Um, She was very clear. And when she talked to us, about her qualifications and the fact that several times in her career she has been she's been considered you know the losing underdog and um, you know she's kind of prevailed. I also think it says a lot about her character that every day she works with a contingent of people who do not even veil their dislike for her. And I think we all um, we all went to UF at the same time. Maybe not Jeff, but uh, at least you and I, Linda were um, 
I think going to Gainesville at the same time. Yeah. So that's she was you guys's she she was your guys' student body president, evidently, when you were when you Apparently, were Apparently, yes, I learned that. So <laughs> my gosh. Yes, uh, yes, she she was already graduated when I went to University of Florida. I, I actually I that was the first time I had seen Nikki speak live. I've I've heard her speak uh, in some interviews before. Um, I agree. I think she did great. I, I should point out to everyone, obviously, Nikki Fried has not officially announced that she's running for governor. Uh, and uh, as just a disclaimer, the Democratic Party doesn't take a side on on any Democratic candidates in a primary. So um, important if- point. I think I think we're all just as you give that caveat, I think we're all just very excited to move Ron out of the governor's mansion that we're just pretty much going to throw up sentient qualified people you know when we hear them when we see when we see them speak so I think absolutely nikki freed is a contender and nikki freed is the uh, only democrat in the last quarter century to win statewide uh office or at least win g- get into the cabinet of uh in state politics uh, we've had uh, u.s senators uh win in bill nelson but she's the first to to actually to hold a uh, cabinet level position in the state uh, government in the last 25 years. So she's proven that she can uh, win statewide. But um, let's dive into our first topic tonight, which is going to be Governor DeSantis and his COVID corruption. Uh, DeSantis is mired in yet another scandal involving his handling of the COVID pandemic. First, it was hiding data related to COVID deaths way back a year ago. Then it was overruling local jurisdictions efforts to reduce the spread of the virus that was just four or five months ago well now it's just straight up money for vaccines it seems um the miami herald reported on that a key largo community that received enough vaccines for its entire senior population in mid-january when the rest of the state was still struggling to find vaccines and then less than a month after that Donations came rolling into the governor, 17 $5,000 donations and one $250,000 donation, all from that same community. Then again, February, just a month after these vaccines went out, the state decided to bypass the lottery system that it had set up and set up a vaccine center in Manatee, Manatee County that served the wealthiest, whitest, and most conservative members of the community. Uh, when confronted about that Manatee, Manatee County's decision, DeSantis threatened retribution if they didn't like it, threatened to take the vaccines away. So, guys, Commissioner Freed called on the FBI to investigate Governor DeSantis's vaccine rollout because of these very incidents. Uh, it seems like a clear case of trying to profit or play favorites during a health crisis. What do you guys think about it? So, DeSantis, I think he's been clever and trying to distance himself away from this but i feel like if it you know if it walks like a duck duck and talks like a duck it's kind of a duck you know i just um i don't he's of course trying all over the news to mansplain his way out of this but you know on further research what jeff didn't also mention was that sick there were six other pop-up vaccine sites that were uh, put in Broward County, um, which is, you know, twice the number of any other county as well. And, you know, a lot of those were were predominantly white areas. He tried to mansplain that and say that, you know, well, some of those were Democratic areas. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't really ask you, sir, if it was Democratic, but it was certainly white. <laughs> so, you know, and then when you're when you go on to the uh, Florida Department of Health 
website, there's a, there's a place there where you can start looking up, you know, where you can get vaccinated. And I did a cursory search of those places and, you know, through, and it has it through County. And, um, you know, I think what is in question here is these pop-up sites. It's these, these large gatherings to vaccinate these communities. I just found out from, from a friend that the Glades community here in Naples are receiving within the next week, 700 vaccines. You know, that's a pretty upper class, not the fanciest here in Naples, but it's a pretty upper class uh, golf community here in Naples and, and they're getting their own vaccines. Um, you know, I can't say that I've heard of, you know, Golden Gate or, um, or Immokalee. Uh, there was a vaccine site there through the health department that was open from nine to one and had a had a low number of vaccines there. Um, you know, so I, I haven't seen the care or the amount of vaccines that's going to some of these private communities. And, and, and one should also say private in that you have to live there or be a member to be able to get right. these vaccines. Like people from the surrounding areas can't just go in and register for these vaccines. And people that have signed up for the Florida lottery can't even get these vaccines either. It's for these private communities. So, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to call foul on the governor here and whatever mansplaining explanation he thinks he's going to give to counteract, you know, the facts in the situation. Yeah. I'm not sure what, how, and I think this is where the investigation is necessary and how all of these vaccines are getting to where they're getting. Um, especially the ones that are not going through the normal routes that are obvious and open to the public. But another community I know in right here in Collier County and uh, Pelican Bay has their own vaccine um, distribution site. I know they had it uh, at least last week and if not the week prior to that. Um, and I looked it up. I went on there just to see. I'm like, oh, can you know what's the deal? Because they were distributing them at a fire station. I'm like, oh, okay. Can anyone? And in order to register for the vaccine, you had to log into the Pelican Bay website with your Pelican Bay account, and that was how you registered to sign up for one of these vaccines. Which that was somewhat surprising to me. Um, and I, I, I don't know who is doing this and how this is happening. But again, you know, I hate to say like I, I, anybody that's willing to get this vaccine and the more people we can get it into, the quicker we can, that is always a good thing. But the fact that it seems to be falling on in populations that are more white, more wealthy, um, that that's a problem. Why cannot it be evenly distributed amongst rural, urban, or, you know, target or even targeted? I, I would let me let me back up and say I would even be happy if they just did it evenly. Um, I think the probably the smartest thing to do would be to target the populations that are having the biggest impact on from this being. But that's not happening either. It's kind of the opposite. So uh, I've, I think that an investigation is definitely warranted with what we've seen and the lack of transparency that is currently out there. So it'll be interesting to see if they can track down some of these where the money's going. Yeah. I mean, DeSantis has raised over $2.7 million in, in February alone. Uh, and that is by far the largest single month donation hall that he's had 
in an off year ever. So clearly the uh, having control of the vaccine seems to be working to, uh, to allow him to raise money. But, you know, Amber, you picked up on a, on a good thing on, or on a, a topic that we should kind of dive a little deeper on, which is, you know, here in Florida, we have a very stark disparity between the toll the pandemic has taken on communities of color and then the access that those same communities seem to have uh, towards the vaccine. I, I, I don't really see the political benefit of this other than just, I guess, donations that Governor DeSantis hopes to to get from ignoring all of these communities of color. It just seems pretty clear that he's distributing the vaccine to the either the highest bidder or the whitest bidder. So well, it doesn't, I mean, what is it? It doesn't, uh, the, the predominant number of, of minority and, peop- and people of color are not voting for DeSantis anyways. So I don't think he thinks that, of it as a large risk. I mean, you look back to the beginning of this whole thing and talks from the highest levels of our government at that time when New York was getting ravaged with the vaccine and other urban, uh, generally blue areas. And there was talk of like, oh, well, you know, at least it's hitting the Democratic areas. So, like, it's not a big deal. Like, we don't have to worry about it because that's, those aren't our people. Rather than thinking about all of us, whether we voted for him or not, as being equally important. And I think that's, that's what it seems like it boils down to anyways, that it's less important for them because they are less likely to vote for him. So he'd rather take care of the people that he can get donations from, he can get votes from. And uh, I, I don't know how else you could see it. And it's who he thinks his demographic is. I mean, as I said in the last episode, DeSantis and the Florida legislator think legislature think they have a mandate. And so he's going to continue to pander to his base. And that's who he thinks his base is, you know, particularly the ones with the bigger pockets. You know, just to, to put it in perspective, African-American population is like 12 percent of the cases and 14 percent of the deaths per capita uh, in the state of Florida. And they've only received six percent of the vaccine rollout. So this is clearly a, a decision that uh, the governor has made to target uh, the white and well, the whitest and the wealthiest. And um, I guess he's making a decision that he thinks this will pay off politically for him. And it's up to us to make sure that everyone knows about it and that we get everyone to the polls and and get them to vote against him in 2022. But uh, let's move on to the next topic uh, on our agenda, which is the American Rescue Plan. Looks like it's going to be headed to the president's desk for his signature. um, And it's got a lot of things to be happy about, to be honest with you. Uh, More stimulus checks, over 280 million Americans will receive uh, additional stimulus checks, $1,400. It extends unemployment benefits into September. It gives child tax credits, billions and billions and billions of dollars for vaccines and testing and personal protective equipment, money for schools, rental assistance. This bill's got everything. And most importantly, it's designed to help ordinary Americans recover and get back on their feet. And Marco Rubio and Rick Scott voted against it. So Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a lot in this. I don't, you know, I don't want to go through everything. We've talked about it on previous episodes, but uh, why don't we tell what was the single piece of the bill that we're most excited about or most interested in? Linda? Well, I think it's also important to say that um, despite the tweaking that they did between the House and the Senate, um, I think the bones of his plan is still there as well as the amount that he wanted. He didn't scrimp on that. And it's also important to note that regardless of what um, uh, Mitch McConnell is publicly saying on every forum, he could, you know, slow talk his way through um, that this bill is full of pork a lot of things that, you know, aren't necessary for the recovery. Um, you know, it's, that's flat out bull****. Um, this bill is jam-packed with things specifically for uh, COVID relief, and that is going to help Americans. So I'd like to counteract that message that's being sent out by every Republican that has a, a microphone in front of his face. I'm really excited about the child tax credit the bill would temporarily expand the, the child tax credit, increasing the amount to 3000 for children ages 6 to 17 and 3600 for children under age 6. The research on this to bring people out of poverty is extensively positive. So I, I'm very excited by this and for families that really, really need this. Um, it said that uh, the bill says that the amount is gradually reduced for couples earning over 150,000 and individuals earning over 75,000 per year. Families eligible for the full credit would get payments of up to 300 per child per month from July through the end of the year. Um, the other ca- the other piece of information is that I'm sure congressional Democrats in the White House, you know, are hoping to make this this tax credit permanent moving forward, which I think, you know. Honestly, every bit of research done just notes just how much of this would would bring families that are that are, you know, in the midst of of a poverty situation out of poverty and help them considerably. The one that I'm most excited about, it has to do with the Obamacare subsidies. So one of the things that uh, the American Rescue Plan does is it, it addresses Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and giving additional subsidies for buying health plans on the federal marketplaces. And, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of talk over this over the last, you know, decade since the bill was passed, since Obamacare was passed, and about how health insurance within the exchanges have been uh, too costly uh, for people to actually uh, benefit from using them or can, can they afford them. Well, one of these things that happens during these types of legislation is that you pass the law and then you attempt to tweak the law as you go forward and you make changes and you realize, hey, this isn't working and we need to change this bit of it. Oh, this is not as inexpensive as we had anticipated. Let's tweak the amount of subsidies that we were going to do. Well, the Democrats and the government never got a chance to do that because Republicans took back control of the House in 2010 and they effectively tried to kill it and make Obamacare not work for people. So for the first time now, we have got control of Congress and we have a Democratic president to where we can actually address some of these issues and make Obamacare work even better. So for instance, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that a 64-year-old earning $58,000 would see their monthly payments 
on an Obamacare insurance plan declined from $1,000 under current law to $400 because of the federal government would take up much of the cost. The other thing the rescue plan does is it includes new incentives to entice the few holdouts, and we're looking at you, Florida, but it includes Texas and Georgia, to finally expand Medicaid to those who where they make too much money to qualify for federal health program for the poor, but too little to afford private coverage. So they've actually got some funding in here to kind of incentivize Texas, Georgia, our state of Florida to finally expand Mad- Medicaid. And to just point out, you know, to remind people of what happened to Obamacare, I, I just want to point out that in 2010, when the bill was passed, there were 20 million Americans who didn't have health insurance. The uninsured rate in this country was 17.8% in 2010. In 2019, the uninsured rate is 10%. So the Obamacare has dropped the uninsured rate down by seven percentage points. And that's without Texas, Georgia, and Florida expanding Medicaid, which would add here in Florida alone, estimates show over 600,000 Floridians would be eligible to be added to Medicaid. So there are ways that we can make Obamacare even better. And this, I'm just so excited to finally see the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare get the tweaks that would normally happen to every single bill that's been passed in the American pantheon of bills it finally starts to get things added to it and tweaked and changed so that it will not only work, but it will work better for every single American and people will start to be able to feel comfortable in going in there and getting their health insurance. It's just a great, great deal. Bill is popular. It's polling north of 70% nationwide, which is unheard of when you consider that as polarized as we are, I mean, we're 50-50 on storming the Capitol. So uh, the fact that this is 70% is a a big deal. Uh, The provisions will help people get back on their feet, yet zero Republicans voted for it. Byron Donalds voted against it. Marco Rubio voted against it. Mario Diaz-Balart, all of our representatives in Congress voted against this bill. Why? What is the plan for them opposing this bill? It's 70%. I have no idea. I mean, I, and, and, you know, you look back to the, um, the CARES Act, which was passed at the beginning of this pandemic, which was a $2 trillion um, bill, and every single Democrat voted on that bill, even though that bill was going to politically in an election year be helpful for Trump. Um, That bill was obviously necessary for our country, but the Democrats did not hold that politically against the American people for their own benefit. They knew that this was needed, even though it would make Trump look better. And then you go to now the zero people, the zero Republicans who voted for this American relief plan. Um, and I saw something basically that said that Republicans believe that hurting Biden is more important than helping Americans. And again, I, it's hard to see it another way. It's really hard to see it another way. I think it's at their peril. I, I don't think they're really being smart here. I don't think there's any upside to them not supporting this very popular plan. 
I don't know. Jeff, what do you think? You're, you're, our, you're our political strategist here. What is their upside? I, I don't think there's an upside. I think they're hoping for a de- uh, I, Well, I think that their hope, there isn't an upside if the bill works out as we think and experts think it will. The only upside that they can hope for is that they vote against it. It doesn't work out as well as they think. Maybe, you know, it's look, it's $1.9 trillion. With that amount of money going out into the thing, there's going to be some misspending, mismanagement mm-hmm. of funds. There's going to be some stuff that was spent on things that shouldn't have been spent. Maybe they can make a big deal out of the mismanagement of funds. And since they didn't vote for it, they can kind of say, see, we told you this was a this is a boondoggle and we can't you know, trust the Democrats to run government. But and also people's uh, people's memories are very, very, very short. And they know that by the time there's any sort of election next year, um, people, they're going to be on to whatever the thing that week is. And it's not going to be this. I agree. But I think ultimately, from the Democrats perspective, and we've said this multiple times over the last uh, 30 episodes, which is, you know, pass something that works and run on the thing that works. Um, Don't worry about who voted for what and don't worry about trying to make the bill palatable to a Republican group of people who aren't interested in helping you. I mean, if if you know, I'm, I'm reading, finishing reading President Obama's uh, bi- biography right now, and it's just painful to to read through it and hear about the obstruction that the Republican Party engaged in. And it looks like they're making the exact same calculation, which is to oppose absolutely everything, regardless of whether or not it hurts the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful and optimistic that this plan is robust enough. It has enough money going to the right places that it will help boost the economy. It will help get people on their feet. It'll help get the pandemic under control so that when we turn the corner and we're in March of next year in an election year, the economy's back, people are out moving around, and the and there's a, a level of optimism in, in the voting public that Democrats can really ride on. Uh, because I think if we had taken months to try to pass a, a watered-down version of this with maybe one or two Republicans signing on to it, those one or two Republicans wouldn't come to the Democrats' defense next year if everything wasn't working very well. So I've got to say, great job by President Biden on pushing this through um, and getting it done quickly and uh, and not worrying about the fact that Republicans aren't going to vote for it. He learned the lesson of the, last, uh, of the Obama presidency, which is, you can't trust Republicans to come and do what's right. They're always going to do what's in their best interest. So, well, we also have to hammer this message wise. I, I will say it again for the cheap seats. We're not fantastic at messaging. And we just need to, again, say we're helping you, America. Who's not? And that would be your fellow Republican. Well, I think uh, the thing that's going to most likely happen, especially when you have states where Republicans are in control, like Florida let's say this stimulus does well and hopefully the virus is at bay and everything is returning to normal next year in an election year. We'll say, see, see what we did. Look at what we did. They're going to take credit for any good thing that happens. Um, And they'll, 
you know, and again, I know that's politics in general, but it's at least when the Democrats are either taking credit for something they didn't do, at least there's other times that they are doing things, you know, they try to do things. And sometimes you don't, sometimes they don't work out, but at least you're trying to do something. You're just not obstructing everything. And I think that's the difference. The Republicans just let the Democrats stick their heads out and say, all right, well, let's see what happens. If it's a fail, we'll just, uh, you know, we'll crucify you for it. If it works, we'll just take credit for it. And, uh, you know, we don't have to do anything. Yeah, I find it funny. The Republicans, everyone needs to remember the Republicans are all against giving money out to help people in a pandemic, but they were perfectly fine in a perfectly good economy to give over a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the wealthiest people in this entire country uh, and businesses uh, in Donald Trump's tax plan that he that they passed. So, you know, it seems to me that they're they're, that pocketbooks open and the money is flowing when it's to rich people. Seems like the pocketbooks open and vaccines are flowing when it's for rich people. But when it's for poor people, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a second. We, you know, we've got to, we got to pump the brakes here. We can't give money to people who actually need it. We need to give it to the people who already have plenty of it. So um, we need to just keep hammering that because even though we lost Florida in the last election cycle, we did see that we picked up three or four points here in Collier County with white college educated voters. And um, it's this type of messaging that worked. It's college educated voters are sick and tired of watching a Republican party that is just untethered to reality and has no interest in governing. And we need to keep hammering that. Amen. So Hallelujah. let's move on from the negativity of Republicanism and do our new segment, our moment of positivity Linda, why don't you take it away right in our day? This is my favorite segment, Jeffy. I love it. I love it. Um, Okay, so um, I I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have something. So I went looking on our, on the internet and um, (laughs) that's where where we find everything. That's where we find everything. I, you know, and so loud. (laughs) So thank you very much. So it was really interesting because we all watch the Super Bowl. I do love watching the Super Bowl commercials. That is a favorite thing of mine. Um, I think I'm a very generous, generous commercial watcher. My husband would say that all the commercials Mm -hmm. sucked. But there was a couple yeah. that were really good. So there was one which I didn't quite understand. And it was kind of a this 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 ad, and it was narrated by actor Sam Elliott, who, you know, you know, he's a goat. He's pretty fabulous. Um, and so he kind of paid homage to this reading as a kind of adventure, and it included Tom Hanks. And he mentioned this bookstore in South Carolina called foggy pine books and in in the ad he said foggy pine books has the best selection in all of boone and he says they have books of all my interests such as world war ii and also the books about events from 1939 to 1945 that's something he liked right well as it turns out um stephen colbert bought the ad space to give to a business that had fallen on on tough times due to the pandemic And so as his people are searching for these worthy businesses, they came across this little bookstore um, called Foggy Pine Books and they were struggling and they had actually put a sign um, 
and I and I think I said the the state wrong. Foggy Pine Books in Boone, North Carolina, and they had put a sign up on their Instagram page, and it said, "To keep us here, Foggy Pine Books must sell one thousand three hundred and fifty books minimum every month." And so, of course, Stephen Colbert saw it. He put this ad, and he said, after the ad aired, Ruth, uh, a website said that Foggy Pine Books was absolutely slammed with orders. They received more orders in the first few hours than they typically do for an entire month, especially in the winter. They heard from people across the globe, spanning from Ecuador to Finland. So since then, Foggy Pine has, has slowed down, you know, but they're still really, really busier than normal and continuing in the small book tradition. And as I know, you guys feel the same way. I think, I think, sometimes the essence of a community is just a cute, adorable bookstore where you can go in, you know, the people who work there, you know, you're going to get a great book, you know, you can sit down in a comfy chair and, and read this book. And, you know, maybe they have a cafe, maybe they have a yummy cappuccino, who knows, but you know, it, it makes, it makes a town, you know, and, and kind of gives it an ambiance. So I literally was brought to tears by this little story. And of course, Stephen Colbert, classy, classy as all classy is. So that was my kind of feel good story for the day. That's cool. I, I had not awesome. heard that. Amber? Yes. Yeah, so I found, I read a little statistic this week that I thought was a positive that you could glean from this last year of a lot of not positives. And um, that was that they have registered only one death of, from the pediatric flu this year um, in the whole country. Just one. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and, my you gosh. Know, obviously, you know, can be attributed to all the distancing and masks and hand washing and everything. And I just thought that was you know, if there's a positive that's come out of this, obviously there's a lot of deaths that are that are going to outweigh that. But um, I thought that was very fascinating. And I hope that just as a society, maybe we learn something going forward about illnesses and how to be a proper kind human, although not to bring down the, the positive hour uh, this but, last but... year hasn't shown me that a lot of people are willing to do that. But I can only hope so. That's such a positive statement and a positive statement for, for, you know, wearing masks, for washing your hands, for using hand sanitizer. I mean, these things, as far as public health measures, that is a most discernible way to, to see that it does, in fact, work. I agree. So my positivity, moment of positivity, item of positivity is uh, a article in The Guardian, uh, which uh, I will send to the two of you. But it's of an image of an oil tanker that is seemingly floating above the water. And it was taken by a man, David Morris, uh, on the Cornish coast uh, in Great Britain. And uh, when you look at the photo, the tanker is literally hovering what looks to be hundreds of feet above the water. And what it is, is an optical illusion called superior mirage. 
and it happens when warm air sits on top of a layer of cold air. And I'm going to read you the paragraph from the article explaining it. It says, because cold air is denser than warm air, it has a higher refractive index. In the case of the hovering ship, this means light rays coming from the ship are bent downward as it passes through the colder air to the observers on the shoreline. This makes the ship appear in a higher position than it really is, in this instance, above the sea surface. And this I is... I just pulled up the uh, picture. Me so. too. I'm looking like, at it right now. It's. I would have said that's photoshopped. There ain't no way. Well, yeah, like, right. Why, and it's amazing. Why, why is this not something that we see more uh, frequently? That's interesting. Well, it's because this is not a normal thing for warm air to sit on top of a cold layer of air. And I guess with this particular instance, it was happening far enough and the item was big enough that you could actually see right. what you were what you were witnessing. The opposite effect is one that we're very familiar with, which is called an inferior right. mirage, which is when you see what you see on a typical Florida roadway in the summer, which is it looks like puddles on the road. And that is cold air sitting on top of the hot roadway or hot air that's right on the top of the hot roadway. And the light from the sun is refracted back upward towards our eyes, looking like a puddle. So this is the opposite effect that uh, that the with the ship um, is the superior mirage. And um, the first thing that came to mind with this is that's freaking awesome. And I would love to have been walking along the coast to see the ship just floating, seemingly yeah. floating out in the distance. But it made me think of all of the stories you read in history books of of sailors and and bystanders witnessing floating objects and how how you can really just attribute all of that to some scientific principle that is un misunderstood and it's a trick in your eye and it's just wonderful that not only was this captured on film but um they were very quickly able to say uh that it wasn't and they said one thing they added was that it's, I guess it's more common than, than we're aware of, but there are pictures of this where it happens with a, uh, like a sailboat. And the way you can tell it's obviously a optical illusion is that you don't see the keel under right. the water line. The line is directly where the ship meets the water. And that is all you see. So you don't see anything that's underneath the water line, obviously. And so that's what you're seeing. But, um, so that's my moment of positivity. Yay, that science. Is. Yet one more uh, example of that something cool out there. insanely cool. First we went to Mars, and now we're watching ships float. So, Jeff, you're, you're two yeah. for two in the cool factor, friend. All right, that's our show. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. Until next time. So long.